As we dig into our passage this morning, I just want to take a moment to reset the context for us just a bit here to catch us up on where the Apostle Paul has been and to sort of plug in this last section of chapter 3 into the flow of thought. Uh, You remember, of course, that uh, the Apostle uh, told us, uh, first of all, that he was changing topics back in verse 1. He said that he was here to uh, warn the church of uh, evil workers, of the false circumcision. He uh, informed us that there were those who were at least gathering threats upon the horizon who were there to um, bring discord into the church, false doctrine, false teaching. And so he sets up his own example as a counter to that. He uh, tells the Philippians that uh, he, if there was anybody who would be able to boast, would be able to boast in what he has accomplished, his own righteousness. Verses 4, 5, and 6. And, and then uh, what he does is he goes on and unfolds for us the drama of his conversion experience. How a great change of mind has happened. Where he now counts as loss all things for the sake of Christ. Now, 12 and 16, or 12 through 16 here, uh, the Apostle goes on to tell us uh, that there's a race now. There's a Christian life. Yes, we come to Jesus for salvation. Uh, Yes, we are justified in Him. But now there's a process of working that out in our lives. And he likens that Christian life to a race. And he calls us to, to live it. He compels us to follow Him. Uh, He tells us how that he is constantly reaching forward to this prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Now, we come to verse 17. Here the Apostle Paul doesn't really let the uh, foot off the gas pedal. Uh, He continues here to contrast uh, false teachers, false doctrine, false Christianity uh, with the Christian life. And first of all, what he does is he points the saints to himself. He points the saints to himself and his example, and and he says here, this is how you're to live. This is how we finish off that Christian race, verse 17. He says, join in following my example. Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. And that's what I want us to break down here, first of all, is the command the Apostle Paul gives to seek out godly examples and to emulate them. He says, 17, join in following my example. Now, this is not unusual for the Apostle Paul. If you just turn over to chapter 4, verse 9, you'll see that Paul there uh, commands his example to the church. He says, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so the Apostle Paul there, in another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1, 2 Thessalonians 3, he seems to be always regularly calling the church to follow his example. Now, in contrast to that, he says that there are others who are not worthy of condemnation or commendation. They're not worthy of patterning our, their life after them. He's going to talk about those in verse 18. But, you know, when we begin to see this example of Paul, first of all, I think it strikes us as a little bit odd. Why would the Apostle Paul commend himself? After all, Jesus Christ is the great author and finisher of our faith. After all, Jesus Christ is the great example after which we are to pattern our lives and the one whom we are to strive after and to, and to run hard towards at the end of the finish line. 
But I, I want us to think a moment here what Paul is doing. He's not saying, follow me because I'm perfect. If you don't believe that, you can see that in verse 12 of chapter 3. He says, not that I have already obtained or have already become perfect. At other times in the Word of God, he tells us that he fights and he beats his body into submission uh, so that he will not be disqualified from the ministry after all the years of service. Uh, and so, on many occasions, the Apostle Paul, in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, calls himself the chief of sinners. He doesn't do this out of a delusional sense of self-grandeur, as if he is the one to be on a pedestal, as if he is the one who has arrived, as if he is the paragon of all virtue. What he's doing here is he is saying that there is a connection between our theology and our practice. There is a profound connection between these two things, and the link is so strong that we're not going to be able to apprehend the faith which we believe properly and adequately, unless we see that faith lived out in the Christian life. What kind of linkage is Paul seeing? I I think he's already suggested that here. He's told us about this uh, profound decisive change of mind that occurred here in verse 7 when he turned away from the old patterns of of pursuing confidence in the flesh, circumcision on the eighth day, a a proud member of the tribe of Benjamin and so forth. He counted all those things as loss. What was that but his conversion, his justification. But then he goes on to show us that the Christian life is to say, yes, I haven't arrived Yes, I must keep pressing forward. The Christian life is always about counting the fact that I have not arrived in myself. I am not what Jesus wants me to be. So it always goes forward with this accurate spiritual assessment. I think that's in part the example what Paul is commending to the saints. When he says, follow my example, he's saying, follow my example of having a right understanding Of myself spiritually. You know, the law is there to continue to, yes, show us the righteousness of God, and yes, show us what we're to strive for, but the law also constantly shows us what we haven't done yet. And in so doing, it makes us have an accurate assessment of ourselves. I think also the example which Paul is commending to the saints is this persistent pursuit of the prods. Paul is not hot and cold in his Christian walk. Uh, Paul doesn't take it up and set it down. Paul continually strives towards the mark of the upward prize, which is in Jesus Christ. That's also part of the thing that we are to pattern and to follow. And finally, also his uh, self-denying service to Christ in pursuit of the gospel. All of those things and probably many more we could package in here to this concept of join and following my example. Uh, But Paul is saying that we need to be able to link the faith with life and see that happen in the lives of other people if we would grow spiritually. Now think of these people here who Paul is speaking to. He's he's speaking to people who who didn't grow up in church. Uh, He's speaking to people who didn't grow up within Judaism. He's speaking to people who didn't grow up going to synagogue. He's speaking to people who never even knew there was a Bible. He's speaking to people who don't have any kind of concept of the God who has revealed himself in the Old Testament even. They come from paganism and ritualism and, 
and the, uh, the false religion of the ancient world. And, and the Apostle Paul is saying, you know, it's wonderful that you've had the chance to be catechized. It's, it's really excellent and great that you've had the chance to, to sit under the preaching of the Word. But Paul realizes that people who have uh, no models, no examples, no consistent memory of seeing faith put into action and worked out in the life are going to need someone to show them how to live out the faith. And so he says, follow my example. And he says, do that together. You will often hear me say, y'all. And uh, again, that's a very helpful way of referring to many people at once. And, And that's really how Paul puts this here in verse 17 when he says, join in following my example. It's y'all. It's not so much that he's saying what I am saying is that each, every individual a person here should follow my example. He's saying together follow my example. Together as the body of Christ, together as fellow believers, linked arm and arm, we need to pursue Christ together. Uh, This tells us there's not any room for isolationism or individualism in our Christian walk. People don't do very well spiritually when they cloister themselves away all on their own or they try to live in this world all by themselves without other people to pray with, to pray for them and who talk with them and converse with them about the Christian faith. We, we need each other. There's not an individualism in our Christianity. But Paul points out here that there's something inherent to our Christianity, that is a covenantalism and a communalism. Listen to how the writer of the Hebrews puts it. He says in Hebrews chapter 10, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the matter of some, but exhorting one another... And so much the more as you see the day approaching. He says, consider one another to stir each other up in love. In other words, what the apostle is saying there to the Hebrews is that part of the way in which God's people are stirred up to love and to good works is by the example and the admonition and exhortation and the pushing on of other Christians. It's a beautiful thing to see this when... Churches, as a whole, grasp the concept that a sanctification is also a community activity. When, when you see particular churches that have really grasped this, and this is part of the fiber and the fabric of the church, that the individuals don't see themselves as just isolated member units, but they see each other as a team pulling together, believing the same truths. United in the same spirit, uh, following together the same goals, pressing all of them communally towards the same mark. Loving each other in a way that Christians are supposed to, according to the model of Christianity we see in the New Testament. But it's, it's absolutely marvelous to see this, because when you see a group of believers band together around truth and substance and, and similar common goals and desires, what you see is a church that God is ready to use. If we would be the kind of church that the Apostle Paul has commanded us to be in chapter 2, 
which is a kingdom-seeking, kingdom-advancing church, here is part of how it's done, is that the saints together follow the example of Paul, learn to live out the Christian life together, and learn to link arm-in-arm to advance the kingdom of God. So there's a third part of this command also, and that's through observation. How do we do it? First of all, he says, we mark out the right example, we find the person who has the right example. Second of all, we communally strive after the example. And then third, he says that we do this by observation. He says in 17 again, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Observe. The idea of close observation. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is encouraging you to do here this morning is to find Christians who have made it a practice of living out the faith over the course of years. He's saying, find people who have demonstrated real maturity. Find people who have grasped the Word of God. Find people who have lived out that faith, whether that be in the context of a marriage relationship, or a parental relationship, or a community relationship in terms of having oversight, responsibility for others. But somebody who is marked by wisdom and maturity and growth and Christ-likeness, Paul is saying, you need to find them. If you are to progress in your Christianity, if you are to grow in your sanctification, if you are to continually press towards the mark that he's talked about in verses 12 through 16, he is saying we need uh, spiritual mentors. Now that can be difficult to do, especially in newer and younger churches when most of the people are new to the faith as well. Sometimes it requires a lot of humility because sometimes we think that we've gone further in our Christian faith than we really have. And we think just because we've learned the catechism, we know that pretty well, that we're advanced in our faith. We don't really need that kind of thing. But, but Paul doesn't give those kinds of outs here. What he says is this is a general a pattern for Christians that we need to find people who are more mature in the faith than us and observe them carefully and closely and see how they connect their faith to their life. Now I have to say that this is very important for us in Reformed circles and I, and I hit on this just a bit last week. We have a tendency to over-intellectualize our faith. We have a tendency to believe that if, if we've listened to enough lectures on Reformed theology, if we've read enough of the books that are, uh, that are substantive and, and unfold the Christian faith for us in an accurate and biblical way, that somehow that is acquiring what it means to be Reformed. And very often when I meet people outside of church and I invite them to come to church and they want to talk to me about Reformed theology because they've been reading uh, a particular contemporary Reformed theologian, I'll always say to them, that's good for us to talk about this, but what you really need to do is to come to church. Because there in the worship of God's people and the gathering of God's people, you begin to grasp the ethos of what it means to be Reformed. You can't separate the doctrine from the practice. Because if you do, all you'll end up being is a bunch of eggheads. And we have that problem. Highly intellectual people who have a theoretical grasp of the truth, but absolutely zero common sense in terms of its application. And then after a while they get bored with the abstract ideas of Reformed theology and they leave the church. 
That's not what Paul commends. We didn't even get that from the Bible. We got that from ourselves. Paul says there is to be a linkage between faith and life in order that we mature. There's a very important reason for that because you see here now in verse 18, secondly, the reason why Paul has taken the time to isolate himself as an example to follow in other spiritually minded godly people. The reason why he has done this secondly is because of false teachers. Notice the very first word in verse 18. I hope your translations have the word for. It's Paul's way of saying because. The reason why you need to follow my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us is because. The reason why you need the link between doctrine and life is because what? Because of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. You see, Paul says the reason why you need examples who can connect doctrine and life for you is because there are people who come in the name of Christ who are actually ministers in the church who seem to be preaching the right things at least some of the time, And yet what he says, what they are indeed, is enemies of the cross. It's hard to imagine a more sweeping or uh, negative indictment of somebody than to say that they are an enemy of the cross. How could you be an enemy of the cross? After all, what is the cross? The cross is the place where the Son of God was nailed. The cross is the place where sins of the elect were imputed to Jesus Christ. The cross is the place where God crushed Christ with the weight of His wrath against all of our sins. The cross is the place where justice and love and mercy combined and met each other. The cross is the place where God reconciled sinners to Himself through the shed blood of His Son. How could you be an enemy of the cross? It's the only hope we have. Paul says there are people who come in the name of Christ who are enemies of this cross. And what they are attempting to do is to turn you away from Christ and His blood and to yourself. That's something the church has had to face in every generation, isn't it? Constantly legalism and Phariseeism and self-righteousness and works and Self-love, self-preoccupation are constantly rearing their, their, their head up within the church. And Christians are constantly being tempted to turn away from Christ unto themselves in the name of religion and wisdom and the appearance of being righteous and holy. And Paul says, if you don't see the proper interaction and connection of faith and life, what's going to happen to you is you are going to be deceived. Now, it's remarkable in terms of the description here, because uh, notice how Paul describes these enemies of the cross of Christ in verse 19. The very first thing that he says uh, characterizes these people is that their end is destruction. Their end is destruction, and, and we would expect this to probably be the last thing in the verse, because it really represents the culmination of disobedience. The culmination of disobedience is that we will reap destruction. 
The culmination of being an enemy of the cross of Christ is that we will, res- that we will reap destruction. The culmination of rejecting Jesus and His precious blood is that we will have destruction. We will go to eternal death and hell. That's what the Bible says. Jesus says in Matthew 25, He says, Depart from me, all you accursed ones, into eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It's the same lake of fire that is previewed for us in Revelation chapter 20. The the, the fact of it is, is that people who reject Jesus Christ are going to go to hell. That's what the Bible says. It says it unmistakably. You know, there's some really hard parts to our faith. And one of the hard parts to our faith is not only that we were conceived and born in sin, we've made a mess of our lives, but that if we don't accept this Jesus who is the remedy, we're going to go to hell. What a terrible thing. And so there are a lot of people who come to the Bible who preach from pulpits and and they take their scissors out and they cut out these verses because they don't want to talk about that. To them it's a metaphor. To them it really doesn't mean what it's saying. They don't talk about it. They'll talk about the positive parts of the Bible. But the negative part of the Bible is here in our text this morning and it's for everybody who rejects the cross. You don't have to be a Judaizer to, to... Reap destruction for yourself. You don't have to be a Pharisee to reap destruction for yourself. You don't have to be a terrorist to reap destruction for yourself. You just have to not accept Jesus Christ as the only Savior. As the only way to have a right relationship with the Father. And so he says, first of all, for emphasis to grab our attention, just how bad it is to follow these people who are enemies of the cross. He says, watch out. If you go after them, you don't follow my example. Here's where you're headed. Destruction. And then secondly, he says they're idolaters. He said, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame. Better to translate it like this. Better to translate it like this who make their appetite and glory in their shame, God. Who make their appetite and glory in their shame, God. See, they make two things God. Food and the physical. Food and the physical. Let's look at this. What would Paul be meaning here when he says, appetite is their God? Well, obviously... Paul has been referring to Judaizers throughout the whole context. People who have decided that, yeah, Jesus is wonderful, but Jesus is not enough. It's great that Jesus died for our sins. It's great that he shed his blood. But really what you need, if you really want to get close to God, is you need Jesus plus kosher diets. Plus all of the things that God said you can eat in Leviticus 11, for instance. He said, that's what you need. And and you find throughout the New Testament, these Judaizers are always bringing up the topic of food. Because they believe somehow that if they don't follow the diet, Jesus is not enough. It's a self-reliance, isn't it? To say, yeah, God is good and Jesus is good, but I'm good too, and I'm going to help God save me. Secondly, he talks about shame. Whose glory is in their shame. What's that? Well, most commentators believe here that shame 
It is the effect of what they talk about. Shame is the effect. In other words, these are Judaizers who are talking openly and publicly in their preaching and teaching about circumcision. And circumcision is of what? Private parts. Let's put it crass. It's about private parts. They are constantly talking about things that are to be private. No pun intended. But you're grasping it. it and Paul says that, that's shameful. That's not, that, that's not to be the focus. These people are obsessed with this. To the point that he says they've made the physical their God. It's false religion, he says. And thirdly, he says their mind is set on earthly things. What is the mindset of a person who really spends all of their time focusing on diets, washings, circumcision? Where's their mind? We couldn't really accuse them of having their head in the clouds because they're not thinking that high. They're thinking about the earth. They're thinking about resources. They're thinking about human potential. They're thinking about the physical. Their religion is made objective in the world. And they have themselves here on earth busy working away, sweating as it were, to perform the righteousness which they think they need to contribute to their salvation. And they have God over here in a box. He's not in their mindset. And so at the very core of their being, the intellectual center, their heart, as the Bible describes it, they are fixed on the earth. That's so contrary to how the Bible talks about how regenerate people are, isn't it? Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says that we are to be changed by the renewing of our mind. Uh, Not thinking according to the form of this world. In other words, what happens to Christians is that we begin to see earth and, and, and earthly reality and life for what it is in a temporal perspective that all of this is just passing away. But that there is an eternity that awaits. There's a God whom we serve. There are things that are invisible that one day will be made visible. That there's, there's something more to our faith than, than just focusing on the here and now. But that's the kind of opponents here that Paul says are attacking the church here in Philippi. They're the kind of opponents that continue to uh, emerge within the church generation and generation out. Whether they are Judaizers or Pharisees or a modern form of it, what the Apostle Paul says is this is going to keep on happening. The Christians are going to be continually prompted to turn away from Christ and the sufficiency that is in Him, and they're going to be prompted and urged to look at themselves. And all the while that's happening, the people who come in the disguise of Philippians 3.19 are telling you that's what it is to practice Christianity. 
See, we put our, our, our finger right on the problem here that Paul's attacking when he joins a faith and life together. He's saying there's a particular way of life that is consistent with our doctrine, and there is a particular way of life that's inconsistent with it. And the thing that's inconsistent with it is the kind of people that he describes in verse 19 who make gods out of the physical realm and don't think of God and His power and His resources and strength as the thing which renews and strengthens and carries them through this life. And so he says, they're going to come to you and they're going to tell you that they have the right practical applications of Christianity. In fact, that's the way it almost always works. Just follow my program. Pursue these ten steps. Higher Christian life is right around the corner. It almost always comes into the church through the means of practice. Paul says the reason why you need to look at my example of connecting faith and life because it's a life that is consistent with the gospel. And this is not. Now just to round off the uh, contrast here, Paul turns us now thirdly uh, to the focus of a Christian. With the remainder of our time, what we want to do is see here how uh, Paul describes the the, the contrasting focus of Christians in verses 20 and 21 when he says... For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Very interesting contrast. Maybe we wouldn't even expected this contrast either because uh, Paul has just, by the way, been telling us the character of the people who are enemies of the cross. And so what we might expect here in verses 20 through 21 is for Paul now to say, here's what it means to be a friend of the cross in this life. But instead what the Apostle Paul does is he says, here is the contrasting focus of Christians. And first of all, the contrasting focus of Christians, people who really love Jesus and his cross, first of all, realize that they have a citizenship that is outside of this world. Notice they have a different horizon. Those who are enemies of the cross of Christ have a temporal horizon. They have a fixation and focus on the things of this world. But people who have a love for Christ and a love for His cross are not absorbed with and thinking only upon what's going on here in our lives, but they have a focus and concentration on what's to come. And outside of this world, there's heaven. And that's where they're headed. And they live accordingly. Secondly here, he says people who are friends of the cross of Jesus Christ eagerly wait for Jesus. He says, from which also we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friends of the cross are people who have a single-minded focus upon a person. This gets us back out of this uh, heady, theoretical, super-spiritual realm, doesn't it? Uh, You could talk about doctrinal definitions all day long, and we need them. But if those doctrinal definitions are separated from the person, Jesus Christ, you're not understanding Christianity. 
Because the faith which we profess and hold to is a faith which is focused on a person. And we eagerly await the Savior, Jesus. Again, I want to stress this, that, that people who live this way are people who've come to know Him. And, the only, and people who've come to know Jesus are the people who want to see Him come again. They have realized that their faith is bound up with a real flesh and blood Savior. And so their life is shaped accordingly. That They're looking forward to Christ. It's so easy for us to not do that, though. It's so easy for us to get absorbed in our religion. It's so easy for us to think that, hey, we've been to church. That's what was important. And, and that's not bad. It's not wrong. It's not unimportant. But, but sometimes the focus of Christians gets so uh, bound up with the here and now and the day-by-day activities and relationships and families and jobs and even building churches that somehow along the way we miss the fact that our faith is supposed to be centered on a real man. And you know when we begin to think about that real man? Sadly but true, we begin to think about that real man when trouble comes into our life. It seems like it almost has to wait until somebody dies that's close to us. Or maybe we're facing our own mortality. Maybe we have a a terrible sickness come into our life unexpectedly. Or an enormous trial that we realize is so big and so bad and so painful that the only way to, to, to deal with it, to endure and to go through that, is to hang on to Jesus Christ. And in those moments, that's when we begin to realize that Christ is profoundly real. And that's wonderful for you as well, if that's what it takes. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. The way it's supposed to be is that you're supposed to read your Bible and go back to the Gospels and see a Savior who you love. You're supposed to see Jesus who was born in a manger and yet was King of the world. You're supposed to see A Jesus who should have been honored and revered and and hallowed by everyone around him, but who was busy being chased out of his homeland into Egypt for fear of his life when he was two years old. You're supposed to see a Jesus who had brothers and sisters who viewed him as an annoying, pesky kid. Who had difficult family relationships that he had to learn how to work his way through and navigate and negotiate and learn how to, to be a brother to somebody. You're supposed to look at Jesus as somebody who has an earthly mother and an earthly father, in a sense, and learn how to submit to them and to, and to be a respectful son. You're supposed to look to Jesus as somebody who woke up day after day and, and went to work and had a regular job and punched a clock and built things and worked with his hands. You're supposed to see a Jesus who was somebody who was willing to get next to people who, even though he was, being, who, who he was God, was willing to come next to people who were full of sin and problems in their life, and he was willing to come next to them and, and to talk with them. Uh, just start reading about the Jesus that is in the Gospels, and I guarantee you, you will find him to be an enormously captivating person. 
How are you to be this kind of person who, uh, in contrast to the false teachers who just sit around thinking about appetites and external fleshly realities, how do you become the kind of person who is living like Paul describes here, those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven who are always looking for the return of his Christ? Well, I would suggest to you the way you do that is you, you learn to, to watch him and to, to read about him and to realize that he's a real person. That this is your Savior. Not a system of ideas, but a person is your Savior. And you become fixed upon Him. That's uh, how we begin to live like friends of the cross, according to Paul, is that we focus attention on Christ. And thirdly, we have hope that He will transform the body of our humble estate into the conformity with the body of His glory. You see, thirdly, Christians are those who really, it seems to me, have a low or at least realistic assessment of their own body in this life. Look at what Paul calls it here. The body of our humble estate, or literally our low estate. He doesn't ascribe to the body great worth or great powers or great form. He says it's a humble, lowly body. And the reason why Paul can say that is because he knows and has experienced in his own body the pain and suffering that goes along with living in a fallen world. He knows that his body is weak, that it runs out of energy, that it feels pain, especially after he's been beaten severely uh, by people who don't like him, who are enemies of the gospel. He realizes that it's a body that feels and senses cold and heat as he's been trapped in the deep or he's walked through deserts. Paul understands something of the frailty and the weakness of the body, and not only that side of it, but also the weakness of, of our fallen, sinful human nature, which is constantly being tempted and tested and be pulling away from Christ and the Christian life. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7 when he, he continues to, to, to feel within him that working... Uh, that wrestling between the flesh and the spirit where he wants to do what's right and yet he does what he doesn't want to do. You see, he has an accurate assessment of what it's like to be a human being this side of glory. He says, our body is humble and it's low, but contrast that now to the false teachers who have this concept that the body is almost perfectible. As long as you, as you eat a kosher diet and you get circumcised, you're okay. Minimizing the reality of the fact that we are fallen people in fallen bodies and in a fallen world. And it seems to me there's a tremendous parallel between that and what we see in the world around us today. Surgical centers are turned into chop shops where people go in and they have plastic surgery so that they can deny the effects of the fall. Everything's okay with me. I just bought a new body today. Thinking that somehow they have slowed down or, or snuck past the fact that they live in a fallen world. Buying themselves a few more months or years to tack on to the end of their life. Beautifying the external so they can forget the reality of the internal mauling that's going on inside of them. That there's tribute to pay at the end of this journey. Because they haven't trusted in Christ and that tribute to pay is death in hell because they've rejected the cross. 
Paul says that Christians are not the kind of people who are running around obsessed with the body because they believe something profound is going to happen to the body that he describes here, it'll be transformed. Now, I don't know exactly what the transformation is. If you read in the Gospels about Jesus' resurrected body, it, it, it seems pretty, pretty unlike ours in a lot of ways. It, it seems to be able to move through material substances and walls and all kinds of things. Yet at the same time, the body was recognizable. He could eat and he drank and, and, and he was able to be hugged. He had a physical body. So I'm not exactly sure what this transformation consists in. All I know is that every time we read about it in, in the Bible, say 1 Corinthians 15, something marvelous happens to our body where the effects of the fall and the sin are just peeled off of us. And it's transformed by power, and that's what Paul says we focus on. Is that we're not obsessed with the body here in this life, because the body is going to decay, and we're going to die. But there is a body that awaits us, which is transformed. You see, it's hope. It's hope for people. And that's the way Christians live, with hope, he says. And finally, we live with the hope of the power of the resurrection because he finishes off the phrase in verse 21 say that Christ conforms us by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself so friends of the cross of Christ and those who submit to Jesus as Lord he says are those who are trusting in Christ's power to change all things and not human power to say that Christ has all of the resources. Christ has everything that we need. That's what Friends of Cross are about. Then Paul says they look to Christ instead of themselves. They look to heaven instead of earth. They look for a transformed body instead of venerating the present sinful body. And they hope in the power of Christ instead of the power of fallen men. And that, Paul says, is the way we are to live. we wind our way to conclusion here this morning, I can't help but remind us that there's a contrast implied here, though. There's a contrast that's implied all throughout this passage here. And the contrast is this, is that Christians daily stand before two choices. The Christian life is every single day lived at a crossroads. Will we follow the path which leads to destruction or will we follow down the road which Christ himself has blazed into glory? That's what you have as an option before you every day in a sense. You can go the way of the world. You can go the way of fleshly wisdom. You can go the way of false religion. You can go the way of secular humanism. It's a dark path which leads to destruction, but it's constantly pulling at the Christian. Constantly. Or you have this narrow, unadorned road that heads to a prize and an upward call, which is Christ. Paul says that's the road that Christians are to follow. And, and, and he says this is how we do it, so that we resist the pull of the dark road that leads to destruction. Is that we, we find people. 
who are living a godly and mature life, and we, with them and with fellow believers, uh, pursue that path. I want you to look side to side and back to front this morning, and I want you to realize that the Christian life that you've been called to, that call Paul's you to here, is something that you do with the people God has given you. And the people that God has given you to make that journey this morning are right here next to you, and God has given the people who are with you here as gifts to help you to get down that path together, because Paul says it's something you do together, it's something that's about you all. Following the example of Christ's likeness. We do that every day, remembering that we have opponents who want us to take our eyes off of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's exactly why the Apostle Paul has spent all the time that he did in verses 18 and 19 describing the kind of the character of the opposition that we have, so that we will be realistic about it. We'll be realistic about the fact that there are constantly people rising up within the context of the church who want to take our attention and our focus off of Christ and to put it back on ourselves. I want you to know, people of God, this morning, that every single time you hear someone speaking and giving credence to the fact that we look to ourselves and to our works and the things that we do and the things that we don't do, or the things that we watch and the things that we don't watch, the, the music we listen to or don't listen to, you need to start hearing when people talk this way as if there's particular, exact, cookie-cutter ways in which we live in order to be good Christian, squeaky-clean-looking people, that you're hearing something that didn't come from Paul, nor did it come from Christ, but it came from the enemies of the cross. And yet it's always sold as the safe way to Jesus, or the better form of Christianity. Anytime you hear such pious-sounding, high-minded Christianity, you realize that that's the dark road to destruction. It's about enemies of the cross. What Christianity is, is following the pattern of godly Christians who put faith into action, who live like Paul speaks of here in these last verses, focusing on a citizenship that's in heaven. Looking forward to the appearing of a Savior, a personal Savior, Jesus Christ. Longing for a transformed body that puts away this sinful, sin-cursed, fallen body, replaces it with what's glorified and fit for the Spirit, and those who look forward to Christ unleashing His resurrection power to change all things and putting their trust in that. that that's what Paul says is a, is a disciplined, godly, Christ-exalting Christian life. Paul says, you see that in me, imperfectly, and you'll see that in other brothers and sisters in the Lord. You'll see it imperfectly. But when they're adorning that and they're preaching that and they're clinging to that, Paul says, you have something to observe and to follow and to assist you to reach that goal he spoke about. People of God, this morning I commend you to the example of Paul in verse 17. He says, join in following my example and walk according to the pattern." You have in us. Let's pray.